Amen. Amen. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, choir. It's good to see all of you. Doing all right? Good morning. Okay, good. You're a lively bunch this morning. Um, all right, so we are uh, in the book of Hebrews. Are you enjoying Hebrews so far as we've been in? Okay, this is not uh, easy lifting. I mean, it's heavy stuff. Uh, we've been talking about how Jesus is our great high priest, right? The first part of the book talked about the coronation of Jesus, that he is king enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, We've shifted a little bit of the emphasis. Now we're talking about the atonement that Jesus has made on our behalf as the great high priest. He's a high priest who identified uh, with every single one of us in our weakness by becoming human, making his dwelling among us, becoming human in every way. He uh, then went to the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice, died, Buried, rose again, ascended, went to the right hand of God the Father in glory, um, and is seated on high as our great high priest. And uh, the writer to Hebrews has been sort of unpacking um, a, a little bit of the problem that comes with this, because Jesus doesn't fit the normal pattern of what a priest should be. He's not a Levite, right? He's not descendant from the tribe of Levi. That's where the priests came from. Jesus isn't a Levite, and the writer to Hebrews is saying, no big deal. Uh, Jesus has actually got a better pedigree. Uh, he has the pedigree of an indestructible life. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not Levi, right? So you have that sort of cleared up. Uh, the second major problem is Jesus doesn't actually offer a sacrifice, right? I mean, he doesn't take an animal and like a bull and make an offering in a temple or anything like this. Uh, but the writer of the Hebrews said last time, and we looked at this, that doesn't matter. Actually, it's even better what Jesus did because he offered himself, his own body as a sacrifice. He offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins, a once-for-all sacrifice for all times, right? Remember this? This week, we're going to tackle another thing that makes Jesus different, and that is that he didn't actually go into the temple in Jerusalem, There's a temple. That's where sin gets atoned for. Jesus never went in there. He never went into the Holy of Holies, never applied blood to the altar. And so that's a problem. How do you have a priest who didn't go in and minister in the the temple in Jerusalem? Do you get the problem? It's a little bit. It's like, how can he be the great high priest if he didn't do that? Okay, now that's what we're tackling today, and so I want you, if you have your Bibles with you, grab them, open them up. We're in page uh, uh, 1005, 1005 in the Black Pew Bible, so if you didn't bring a Bible and want to use that, please grab it out and uh, join us here. We're going to read the first six verses, that's all, of Hebrews chapter 8, and then we're going to set up what's going to, what we're going to talk about for the next couple weeks, okay, uh, today. It's a little bit of an intro to the content that's coming. Uh, But let's read it together. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. I'll read if you would follow along with me here. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. What is he talking about? Hang in there. Verse 3, for uh, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and thus it is necessary for this priest, Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, 
he would not be a priest at all since there are already priests in place who are offering gifts according to the law, okay? They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, this is the tabernacle in the wilderness that then became the temple later on, okay? When... um, When Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Thanks be to the Lord for the reading of his word. Now, this, I, I know I, you're probably already confused. Let me see if I can help a little bit. Um, so it is true, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, it is true that Jesus is not a priest who ministers in the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? He, never get, he never went into the Holy of Holies. He never did that. Never applied blood to the mercy seat in the temple. Jesus never did that. He's not a priest who went and did that. There are priests on earth that are doing that, Right? The Levites, Jesus didn't do what they did. Jesus' priestly ministry takes place, he's going to say, in another temple. A better temple. A greater temple. A greater tabernacle in heaven. Okay? And he quotes here from Exodus chapter 25, verse 40, and really referring to the whole chapter, in which Moses goes up onto the mountain and receives the description, he sees something that becomes the template that he then goes and builds the tabernacle to match, okay? So so God showed Moses something, and then Moses went down and copied it when he made the tabernacle, okay? And so the question is, what did Moses get to see? We don't really know, Um, but the point that the Hebrew writer is saying is that what What Moses built and the people of Israel built when they built the tabernacle in the wilderness, and you know what this is, right? This was like the mobile tent where uh, God's holy presence dwelled, and there was a holy place, and then a sanctuary, an inner sanctuary, and an outer court, and this is where the priests ministered, and the people would come and bring their sacrifices, and then it would progressively go in. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go all the way into the holy place and make atonement for the sins of the people. That's what the tabernacle was for later became built into, you know, nice building, and that was the temple. But it started as a tent, a tabernacle. And, and what we see in Exodus 25, and what Hebrews is saying, is that what Moses built with the people was a copy, a shadow, a replica of some original design that Moses saw, but we've never seen again. Okay? And so that's, that's what he's saying. And he's saying Jesus is ministering in the original. So the Levites are working in the replica, but there's an original somewhere, and Jesus is working his priestly ministry in the original. Okay? Now, you say, oh, man, this is weird. I, yes, it is weird. It gets a little weirder. Okay? Hang with me. Because we get two more passages I have to show you. These are in chapter 9. We'll come back to these later, but let's just look at them real quickly. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
than through the greater and more perfect tent. Now he's talking up, up here, right? Not made with hands, that is not this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by, not by means of blood of goats and calves, that's the earthly ministry, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. Do you see this imagery of him entering into like some sort of heavenly tabernacle, heavenly temple? Okay? You see it again down at the end of the chapter, Hebrews chapter 9, verses uh, 23 and 24. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, okay, now we're talking about the earthly tent, to be purified with these rites, these sacrifices and, that were done on earth. But then the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, they had to be purified, Jesus' own blood. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So are you with me so far? You get the concept that there's a miniature temple tabernacle on earth. There's some sort of cosmic thing out here. And Jesus is working in the cosmic thing. So apparently there's a temple on earth, and there's a temple in heaven. And the Levites are working down here, but Jesus is working up here. By the way, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. Okay, And all the language here talks about a current ministry in the temple, right? So this is one of the ways we know this has to be dated before 70 AD when we're dating the book. These are the things that scholars look for, for dating and clues and stuff like that. There's an active temple ministry going on. The temple's destroyed in 70 AD. Anyway, just a little aside there, okay? What I want to do today is I want to help get you, uh, your brains around this framework of this idea of a temple above and a temple below and how that works, because that's a little weird, uh, because it's going to be the foundation for everything we talk about for the next couple um, the framework for everything we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks, okay? So today is a framework conversation, and so what I want to do is I want to talk about Hebrew temple theology, I want to talk about Jesus' cosmic priesthood, and I want to talk about our radical new identity. <laughs> so if you were planning to sleep today, forget it, okay? Here we go. Hebrew temple theology. Let's start at the beginning again in the Garden of Eden, Okay, this is where our temple theology begins. Did you know that the Garden of Eden is depicted in the language used in the Bible as a kind of temple? Did you know that? Let me see if I can show that for you. First of all, note that uh, the first thing you need to know is that Eden and and the Garden are not the same thing. Uh, We say the Garden of Eden like they're the same thing, but they're actually not. If you look at chapter 2, verse 10 of Genesis, you will find that there is from Eden, a river flows into the garden and waters it. So what you have is you have a garden that's attached to Eden. Okay, Eden is the place where God is dwelling. The garden is the home of Adam and Eve, and God walks out of Eden into the garden, and he walks among them, and then he goes back into Eden, which is where his abode is. So you have, at the, at the very center thing, we have, we have Eden itself, which is the residence, the dwelling place of God. Then we have the garden, which is sort of like the antechamber, Okay, the, kind of the inner sanctuary where Adam and Eve have access to the presence of God. He comes and meets them there, 
right? But it's a safe place. They're protected from the wilderness and the wild that's out in the world, right? And then the garden ends, and then there's all that stuff out there, that sort of outer chaos of whatever's out there. The serpent's going to come from the outer place into the garden and tempt Adam and Eve, right? So there's evil out there. There's, there's things that need to be dealt with out there that are, that are chaos and, and a threat, right? But the garden itself is a place of, of safety and the presence of God, a mediating space, are you with me so far? So you have these concentric circles. You have Eden, which is the place where God is. Adam and Eve, who serve God and have access to his presence, are in this middle, uh, middle chamber, if you will. And then you have the outer, outer world outside beyond that. This becomes really important because in the ancient Near East, um, this framework screams temple. This framework screams temple. You have a holy place, which is where the presence of the glory of the, of the gods was, right? Or the, in, in Hebrew uh, theology, where, where Yahweh dwells. God dwells in the holy place, right? And then the priests function in this sort of inner sanctuary where they have access to the presence of God, right? And they can f- have fellowship. And then there's beyond, there's the outer courts, which is where the, you know, the, that's where uh, the, the the dirty people can come, and you haven't been cleansed yet, and you, but you can come near. So there's this tripartite, threefold division of sacred space. Okay, this is how ancient Near Eastern people think. In chapter 3, verse 8 of Genesis, the phrase that is used there, that God would come and walk back and forth in the garden, is the exact phrase that is used over and over again in the exact same verbal form of the words that are used of God coming into the holy place and walking back and forth in the temple or in the tabernacle. Same phrase. It's he's walking back and forth in his holy abode. Adam is called to work and keep the garden. The very words that every other time are used uh, not every other time, most of the other time, are used of the priests who were gar- called to keep and uh, to work and keep the temple. So this is priestly assignment. Adam is to be working and keeping the garden just as the priests were called to work and keep the temple. In Genesis, you get this weird description. There's a bunch of gold there and onyx there and some precious metals and, and jewels, right? And you're like, what's that all about? Well, those are the exact same materials that are used in the construction of the temple and the tabernacle. They're the stones that were used in the vestments that the priests wore. It's not haphazard that they're mentioned. The lampstand in the, in the temple and in the tabernacle was fashioned after the tree of life which is in the garden. Um, the temple, if you go and look at it, if in Exodus 25 and other places, you will find adorned on the walls and on, on all the utensils and all, you will find Garden of Eden imagery all over the temple, all over the tabernacle features and, and construction. Um, when Adam sins... So in a sense, Adam's like this priest of God. Do you see this? And Satan comes in and defile, wants to defile the inner sanctuary, right? And Adam fails as a priest. Eve f- fails as a priestess. 
and they defile the inner sanctuary of the garden. And what happens? God sacrifices an animal to cover over their sin. It's very sacrificial. This is very temple-like. And drives them out to the, what direction? East. Do you know which way the temple faced? East. All the doors faced east. So Adam is driven out to the east, which is the way everyone else has to come back into the temple. And they only come back in by what? Sacrifice. And what does God put in place to guard the garden? The cherubim, which, which are em, embroidered on the temple curtain that separates the holy place from the inner sanctuary. The guardians of the holiness of God who are there to protect and keep the holiness intact. So my point is, do you see that this is, this is all evocative of temple imagery? And it's purposeful. I want you to see that. Adam has defiled the temple and has now made it so that God has to remove himself and humanity has to remove themselves. And now the question is, how will it ever come back together? Okay? Enter the tabernacle. God has chosen a people for himself. He's called the Hebrew people to himself. Exodus 25, Moses goes up on the mountain. He gets instructions to build the tabernacle, this mobile tent where the presence of God would dwell in the midst of the people. And again, in the tabernacle, we see these these three tripartite uh, divisions of sacred space. So we have the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary where the presence of the glory of God dwells, right? Then we have the inner sanctuary, which is where the priests can come. And there's all kinds of, you know, things in there. Uh, there's, a, there's a table uh, for, for bread, provision, just like the garden had trees for provision. You've got the lampstand, the tree of life, the light of God. You've, all this stuff's in there. It's beautiful. There's, you can study it up. But you have the inner sanctuary, and then you have the outer courts, right, which is the outer world. So this tripartite division of sacred space. And then later we get the temples, right? Uh, David builds a magnificent house for himself, a big old palace. And he says, why is God living in a tent when I live in this huge, beautiful, uh, uh, you know, palace that I made for myself? I will build a palace for you, gods, right? I will, I, will, I will create a temple that is worthy of your name. And God says, you don't really need to do that. And David says, no, 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 I'm really sure. And God says, okay, if you really want to, but you can't do it because you're a man of war and you've shed too much blood, but your son can build it. And so Solomon builds the very first temple and he does the thing right. He puts lots of money into it. It's ornate, it's grand, it's, go- it's beautiful. If you've seen the, uh, the Dome of the Rock, in, um, uh, which is now on the Temple Mount in Israel. The, temp, the Jewish temple was, I think, something like three times taller uh, in Solomon's day. And so, it, I mean, it would have been huge. I mean, you look, if you've seen pictures of that building, it stands out. You can see it from 30,000 feet in the air, right? And, and, and it would have been even grander than that. So Solomon builds a temple. There's three temples in in Israel's history. The first one gets destroyed during the exile. They come back, they rebuild it. It's kind of a paltry little 
imitation of the original, but they got it back up and running. Um, later, Herod is going to come along, and he, Herod's the great builder, and he's trying to be kind and beneficent to people and win their loyalty, and so he decides to pour money into the temple and build it up, and then that gets destroyed in 70 AD. So you have three temples, uh, Solomon's temple, the second temple, second temple Judaism, and then you have the Herodian uh, temple. The point is, though, in all of these, all three versions of the temple, the same division of sacred space, holy of holies, inner sanctuary, outer courts, tripartite division of sacred space. Now, how does this all connect? It's about the cosmos. (laughs) In ancient Near Eastern thought, temples were a mirror of the cosmos. The reason temples are built the way they're built is because that's how the cosmos is structured. So they had this idea that, the, that the, all of the creation was divided into three realms. Heaven, earth, and under the earth. Heaven, where God dwells. Earth, where humanity, the image bearers of God dwell. The ones who were called and designed in the beginning to be priests, but who defiled and abdicated their role earth, and under the earth, which is the realm of the underworld. It's where bad things are. It's the realm of Sheol, the grave. It's where the dead reside. It's where Satan and his minions crawl up from through holes in the ground, right? It's, this is where the serpents dwell. This is, this is bad. That's the underworld, right? And that's, it's a primitive way of thinking about reality, but that's how they thought about it. Heaven, earth, and under the earth. The temple which was built on earth, was considered a nexus, a, 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 a center point between the heavens and the earth, a nexus place where the holiness of God could come down and make contact to the earth, right? It's separated. We've defiled the earth. There's sin here. that God cannot come down. But if we have a temple, this could be the nexus point by which he makes contact through the, this one little holy place. Does that make sense? And the temple was constructed as a microcosm, a mini-cosmos of reality, a, a mirror of the way the world was. Humanity had defiled earth, and so therefore had to have it purified in order to have access to the presence of God. And so in this one little temple, in this space, we will enact sacrifices to purify on behalf of the whole earth to make sacrifices to cover and atone. We can't atone the whole earth, but we can atone this space. And as a microcosm, it acts as a functional representation over all of reality. So the real issues were cosmic. Sin was cosmic. The the, the defilement was cosmic, but it was enacted in a kind of parable in the temple, and, and God said, that's enough. It will cover the nation. It will cover the people. You with me so far? So it's a little drama that is enacted in a temple that is pointing to a reality is far bigger than what's taking place in this little piece of geography. 
Now, this brings us to Jesus. Because Jesus' priesthood is a cosmic priesthood. It is a cosmic priesthood. Think about this with me. In John 1.14, what does it say? The word God, Jesus, the word became flesh and made its dwelling amongst us. The word for dwelling is the same word for tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Oh, that's, that's temple theology. Jesus just came down as the nexus point between heaven and earth. The Holy One now connecting the heavens and the earth. You see this? Okay. John 2, verse 19. Jesus says, destroy this temple. He's pointing at the Jerusalem temple. Destroy this temple. And they're standing out there. Destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. And John says he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his body. You're going to strike me down. And in three days, I will rebuild this temple. He's talking about himself. It's not just that he's the nexus point. He's saying, I am the temple. I have come to tabernacle amongst you, and I am the new temple. I am the means by which you will come and be made right with God from here on and forevermore. And if you strike me down, I'll just come right back. The temple got knocked down in 70 AD. It's never come back. Jesus got knocked down in three days. He came back. When Jesus died on the cross, in Matthew 27, verse 51, what happened? Lots of things happened. But one thing happened that related to the temple. The temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. The curtain that separated, the one with the cherubim on it. The temple, that the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the inner sanctuary that the priests had to go through and only once per year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement to go beyond the veil, that t- curtain was wrenched in two from top to bottom. No one tore it from the bottom with a little pair of scissors and went up. No, no, no. God tore it from the top down, and he did it as Jesus died on the cross. Now, See, that's temple theology. Hebrews 10 verse 20, we'll get there, says that that veil as it was rent, it was, it was like Jesus, the veil was his flesh that was rent. That as Jesus was rent in two, if, as it were, on the cross for us, that was the veil of his flesh through which we have access to the Father, to the holiness of God. So what you have in Jesus, you've got again, you have the holy place, inner sanctuary, outer courts, right? And then Jesus comes along and he he makes a dotted line between the inner the holy of holies and the inner sanctuary. It's now a uh, it's 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 no longer there. He's rented in two. There's it's a semi-permeable membrane now, right? It can you can get through now because of what Jesus has done. Do you see the temp, the whole temple structure just changed because of Jesus? Okay, And Hebrews is going to tell us that's just the beginning of what he did. Because Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross, yes? 
and he died, and, he was, and the temple veil is torn, and he, was, die, he dies, he's buried. Three days later, he rises from the grave. He ascends and goes into glory, into heavens, back to his father. But something happened before he sat down. Hebrews is going to tell us that Jesus took his own blood and offered it in the heavenly sanctuary to make atonement for our sins. And then he sat down at his father's right hand. Having made atonement for sins, he sat down. And so he's enthroned as king, but, he, but before he sat down, he made atonement in the cosmos for us. Now, here's what's interesting. If you go back to Leviticus, Leviticus 16, you will see that's the description of what the high priest is supposed to do on the Day of Atonement. That the high priest goes in, sprinkles blood on the altar and all that. There's all these rituals related to it. And then he takes some of that blood and he goes back out from the holy place, the inner, sanctu- the, the inner, inner, inner chamber. He goes back into the inner sanctuary and then back through the rest of the temple, purifying everything as he exits. Right? Making everything holy for the year to come. Here's what's interesting. Jesus never left the Holy of Holies. He went to heaven, made purification for sins, and sat down. Now, why did he do that? This is interesting to me. He sat down, number one, because there was a once-for-all sacrifice, and he didn't have to do another one. Okay? But number two, he had to sit down because he's enthroned as king at the right hand of majesty on high. Right? And, Jesus, and the father says, come, sit at my right hand. So he's obeying his dad. He's obeying God. Thirdly, though, and this is the most important part, why is he seated? He is seated while he's awaiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for him. In other words, he is seated as he waits for the rest of the cosmos to be made right and to be put under his lordship. So when Je- here's my theory. When Jesus comes back, in the second coming, he finishes the purification of the cosmos. He has purified the Holy of Holies. And then one day he will come back and purify earth and under the earth and put everything in its rightful place. He will finish the journey that he started and he will come back and make the world right. No more sin, no more defilement. Right? Is that not what he does in his second coming? So he finishes it. Now, that's not in Hebrews. That's more of a Philip theory. But I think it makes sense. All right. And we catch a vision of this in Revelation 21. You go to the very end of the Bible. In Revelation 21, you have the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth. Comes like like a big hovercraft and makes landing on earth. Heaven and earth are one. They are together. Now, New Jerusalem, which is symbolic for the bride of Christ and maybe the 12 tribes of Israel and all these other pieces, there's lots of symbolism going on. But one of the things that's also going on is you'll notice that it is a cube. The 120,000 stadia, tall, wide, and long. It's a big cube. Now, there's only... You say, why? Why is it a cube? 
No city you've ever seen is a cube, right? Nothing like that. Why is it a cube? Did you know there's only one other thing in the Bible that's a cube? The Holy of Holies. The only other thing in the Bible that's a cube. And so what you have, I think, symbolically, is you have the holiness of God coming down and making, touching down to earth. And now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will be their God and they will be his people. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. For the old order of things has gone away. And he is making everything new. That's it. This is the moment when holiness comes down. So you have the new Jerusalem. And you have the earth, and then you have outer darkness. The threefold division of reality. In the end, that's what you have. Again, the holy presence of God. But notice, the new Jerusalem has open doors, open gates, because the veil has been torn. There's no temple in the new Jerusalem, because God himself is present And he is on the throne, and there's a river coming from the throne. And what's planted by the river? The tree of life. So that all the nations may come, all peoples everywhere, and enter in and experience the fullness of the holiness and the presence and beauty of God face to face. And we're back. See, Jesus, listen, Jesus is making, this is so important. Jesus, in dying on the cross, rising again, going into the heavenly tabernacle, seated at the Father's right hand, he is doing way more than just saving your soul. Your soul needs saving. Mine needs saving. But he is, he is purifying the cosmos. He is sanctifying reality. He is changing the universe. He has accomplished so much more on the cross than we realize. He is setting the world to rights. Making the world inhabitable once again so that the presence of God may be with us and he might walk amongst us once more. That's what's going on. Now, All of that's kind of far out and one day, someday. But there's something radical that's happened even right now. It's already started. And let me talk about that. This is our radical new identity. Because of what Jesus has done in his atoning work, his enthronement, what did Jesus, what's like the first thing Jesus, he promised when he left he would do it. And after he got up there, what was like the first major thing he did? He sent his spirit down to indwell us. His Holy Spirit came down to earth. The nexus between heaven and earth. The spirit came down. And where did it come? Where did it land and reside? In us in us, collectively and individually in us. Ephesians 2.22, we the church are being built together to be a dwelling place of God's 
spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells, same word, tabernacles in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 1 Peter 2.5, you, I, the church, we are being built up as a spiritual house, hmm? temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are the temple and we are the priesthood. That's what has changed. We are, listen, this is crazy. You functionally now are the dwelling place of God on earth. And so now, again, three-part division of the universe. You have his Holy Spirit indwelling you. The holy of holies, if you will, of, of your soul, made right through Jesus. There's the, the next inner sanctuary, the work where the priests reside, which is your life, your body, your, the way you live, work, and learn, and play, and the spaces that you go to. This is where the followers of Jesus reside, the life of the church, our outer function. And then there are people far from Jesus around us. Right? And here's what's different. In the Old Testament, everybody had to come to the temple. But now, the temple goes to everyone. And so there are arrows that just, it just breaks through, you see. And the temple is, is once again a mobile thing. Not because it's a tabernacle that moves around, but because we are now tabernacling as we move around, you see. We are sent out. No longer do the nations have to gather in. The people of God scatter out. And so three quick takeaways, because friends, this is dynamic what has happened here. And I'll just put this, I, I know we use gospel community mission all the time. I just, I want you to see it's everywhere, okay? It's not just something we made up. It's everywhere. This is imminently biblical. First, gospel, gospel reality. Through Jesus, we have unprecedented and unrestricted access to the holy presence of God. Unprecedented, unrestricted access to the holy presence of God. Friends, in the Old Testament, the only guy who got to go into the holy presence of God was one guy, the high priest, and only on one day, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And you and I, we have access 24-7. And what do we use it for? Hmm? Just bring him a laundry list of things we need him to do this week. God, I really need a new car. Is that, I mean... He cares about that stuff. But what if his presence is something that you are meant to enjoy, to walk with him in the cool of the garden, to have fellowship and communion, to draw life and strength and fall in love with the beauty and splendor of your God? You always have access through Jesus. This is why we pray in Jesus' name, by the way. That's not just code. It's not just a phrase we memorize. To pray in Jesus' name is to recognize I have access in Jesus' name to the presence of the holiness of God. 
It's the only reason I can come. It is in his name, by his means, through what he has done. Secondly, in terms of community, friends, together we are a royal priesthood with a ministry of service, intercession, and blessing. We are a community, a kingdom of priests. We are a holy nation. We are a people belonging to God. And together, friends, we are priests, priestesses of the Most High God who who sacrifice for one another, who give blessing to one another, who offer prayers for one another, extend kindness to one another, hold one another up, serve one another. Yes, This is ministry that we do, just like priests. And then finally, we have mission. You see this? Jesus sends us out as ambassador priests, not waiting for people to come to us. We go to them to bring the good news to those who are far from Jesus, that Jesus is setting the cosmos right. And you too can be made right with God through what Christ has done. And we go to them. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. That's what Jesus said. Gospel, community, mission. Right? Three circles intersecting Gospel, community, and mission. There it is again. Can't you hear Jesus calling in this, friends? He says, come, follow me. In the gospel, you have access to God like you've never had before. You now have a community, a family, a priesthood, an assignment, a ministry that you've never known before. And you have a mission to see the glory of God fill the earth. It's it's what I had in the very beginning when I said, Adam, this is your assignment. And he blew it. But my son, Jesus, didn't blow it. And because he didn't blow it, now you can be faithful in your assignment in him. It's all about him. And he says, come, follow Would you pray with me? (sighs) All things new. What a beautiful phrase. That this is what you are doing on this earth and in heaven and under the earth that all of reality will one day be made right under the lordship of priestly work of our Jesus. Father, we thank you for all that you are doing. You are making this world right once more and our lives as a part of that. Teach us to follow you, to rest in what you're doing, to trust you always. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let us all stand together, please.